Ooh, wait a minute. The words. Right, right, right. Say the words. Clatu! <clears throat> Barata! Necktie. Nectar. Nickel. Clatu! Barata! Greetings and welcome to the Cathartic Yardstick with your hosts, Ray and Mark. In this episode, your intrepid hosts examine 1977's big rumor that the rock group Klaatu was really the Beatles recording Incognito. Klaatu, of course, is the name of an alien from a 1950s sci-fi movie. You know, I doubt that aliens would really visit Earth. The way 2020 is going, it's far more likely they'd just lock their doors and accelerate through our neighborhood. Welcome to the Cathartic Yardstick Podcast with Ray and Mark. I'm Ray. I would be Mark. And this would be our podcast. Uh, coming to you, uh, it always feels like it's live because to us it is, but to it you, you're live. probably we're listening bro- to this. Uh, we're broadcasting. That's right. To us, there, there's people out there listening to us right now as we speak. Stay safe from our studios. <laughs> right. Sounds more official. Right. Live from the studio. <laughs> it's the Cathartic Yardstick. <laughs> Starring Ray and Mark. <laughs> and the Cathartic Cardstick Band. <laughs> the Cathartic Cardstick Band. <laughs> <We should> be- <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> like a kazoo band or something. Right. Someone to do the rim shots. <laughs> Hermetically sealed on Funkin' Wagnall porch since noon today. <laughs> Kept in a mayonnaise jar <laughs> on Funkin' Wagnall's porch. <laughs> <sighs> Name a hornet social disease. Ooh, may your youngest son be locked in the steam room with the village people. <laughs> I play us out, Tommy. <laughs> T for two, right? Those always used to used to play. It's like when, whenever yes. he was when he when he was funny, he was hysterical, and he when he was not funny, it was even funnier. Oh my gosh, he could bomb like nobody else. <laughs> And it was funny. He handled it, he handled it really well. But I'm sure he was beating himself up, up afterward, but uh, it Probably. was great. Anyways, it was a great show. The reason why we're here is not Johnny Carson. Although this would be a, a contemporary happening with Johnny Carson. It would be. It would be. And it has to do with a musical director. Not a musical director, but a <laughs> Right. And what are we talking about? What a tortured segue. <laughs> We are talking. They about just get the longer phenomena. and longer as we go on, don't they? <laughs> phenomena. We have a we have an entire show that's just an introduction. Uh, no, this would be about the phenomenon of the band Klaatu and the big rumor, the urban legend rumor, that uh, they were actually the reformed Beatles. Fascinating, and and I lived through this. It was a huge deal uh, when I was in high school, and. Uh, as many of you out there know, I uh, I lived at school in high school in a small dormitory, and th- this like caught fire senior year, and we listened to this this album, this first Clatu album, constantly, and everyone really did think at the time that it was the Beatles. There were a couple of theories. One that was it was the Beatles. Another one that was it was maybe a couple of the Beatles, some studio musicians that had worked with the Beatles that had gotten together and. 
had Lennon and McCartney written songs, um, or maybe like a project kind of like Badfinger, or that it was maybe just a Beatles-influenced group. Well, we'll leave it up to you. We'll, we'll take you through the story of what happened. So they were a Canadian rock group that was formed in 1973 by John Wolashuk and D. Long. And in 1975, they added drummer Terry Draper. And it was that three-man lineup that constituted Klaatu for the rest of their recording career. Now, Ray, where did the name Klaatu come from? Klaatu came from a movie, and let's play a little clip of that. I'm worried about Gort. I'm afraid of what he might do if anything should happen to me. Gort? But he's a robot. He's a product of centuries of refinement. But what could he do without you? There's no limit to what he could do. He could destroy the Earth. And the city is swarming with patrol cars, hunting you. How can we tell them? They won't listen. You must listen. If anything happens to me, you must go to Gort. You must give him this message. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Gort. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Say it. Gort. Klaatu, Barada... Nikto. Gort. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Remember those words. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Now, that was from the movie The, the Day the Earth Stood Still. Not the, the bad remake with Keanu Reeves, but the original <laughs> one with Michael Rennie and uh, Patricia Neal. And it was funny. I watched a, uh, a video of an interview with Patricia Neal from probably... I don't know, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, she said, I, she goes, it was just, it struck me funny saying, having to do the line, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. So I had a hard time delivering it without laughing. And she goes, there was one take where I just, I laughed again. And Michael Rennie leans into me and says, is that the way you plan to deliver it? <laughs> <laughs> she said, I finally did it straight. So uh, yeah, but anyways, Robot Gort was there to be like an, uh, a, a policeman to stop uh, civilizations that were violent from going into space and and getting aggressive with other species. And so Robot Gort was like this space policeman that could destroy worlds that posed a threat. And so uh, ultimately that phrase is what stops the robot from destroying the earth. And it actually helps to reanimate uh, Klaatu, who was the Michael Rennie character. So it's pretty big stuff, Klaatu, but uh, the band members were all all fans. So apparently the band initially was a duo. They released a couple of singles in 1973 that didn't do much. And in 1975, with uh, Terry Draper on board, they hit the Canadian Top 40 with a song called California Jam. And with their uh, career on an upswing, they landed a contract with Capitol Records, uh, or the Canadian branch of Capitol Records. Uh, and the band considered uh, what they did progressive pop. So in September 1976, they released their first album, which would, in Canada was called 347 Eastern Standard Time. But it was named Klaatu in the United States as the Capitol folks found the original title a little too obscure. But I guess in the day the earth stood still, the alien Klaatu arrives in Washington, D.C. at 347 Eastern Time. And Klaatu's approach to publicity was somewhat unique. The story goes that um, they didn't want to do photos or interviews or have a bio. They just wanted to let their music do the speaking. They also didn't plan on playing live. 
and a Klaatu vocalist, bassist, and keyboard player John Wolaschuk said, it really was our reaction to glam rock of the time. We really wanted the music to be the focal point. Also, we knew that the music we wanted to record couldn't possibly be replicated on stage by three people. Terry and I were really big fans of late 60s progressive bands like King Crimson and the Moody Blues. Uh, We also really liked radio from that period, so we were exposed to a variety of well-crafted pop songs, and that really made a a big impression. Draper, who was the the drummer, noted the, the band was reacting to what the musicians believed was a period of musical malaise in the 70s, a lack of substance, a bleak time for creativity. And so they wanted to do music that was on par with what was in the 60s. That was their goal when they started. Yeah, if, if I could interject here with just you a may. clip, too. Uh, and this is the, the first most people heard of, of Clatu was, was this song. So without knowing anything about the band, this is the first most people heard. <laughs> Just beneath the great white way Alfred Beach worked secretly Risking all to write a dream His wind machine His wind machine I love that, that bass. The bass is great, and the vocals do sound pretty British. They do. Uh, I don't. I don't know if that was intentional. Uh, probably, I would. I would guess. Probably, yeah. So the, that first album, three three forty seven EST or Clatu in the U.S. comes out. The band includes no photos, no individual musician credits, no biographical information. All songs were simply listed as being written and published by Clatu. Um, the album got moderately positive reviews, but by Christmas of that year, uh, sales had stalled. But then in February of 77, there was a, a Providence, Rhode Island newspaper called the Providence Journal that ran an article written by a guy named Steve Smith, and it was entitled, Could Clatu Be the Beatles? Mystery is a Magical Tour. Smith said in a later interview, we used to get a bunch of albums to review. If they weren't reviewed, they went in a pile. So if you wanted anything, you just grabbed it out of the pile. So he said, I saw the Clatu album, took it home and listened to it. It had Beatles sounding stuff. So I started researching and I couldn't get any answers. And he wanted to know why did the album sound so much like the Fab Four? It struck me almost immediately. He said the track Sabrosa Subway is completely Beatlish. And so the article speculated that uh, the album could actually be a a release by a secretly reunited Beatles recording under a pseudonym. He he pointed to clues like the album was released by Capitol Records, and that was the Beatles label. Um, The mystery of the missing artist and producer credits, the fact that Klaatu's vocal style and musical creativity could be considered similar to the Beatles. And also, Ringo Starr in 1974 came out with Goodnight Vienna. The cover art to that album was Starr appearing in the place of the character Klaatu from the, the, the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. So he's there with Gort. Um, and the album at a whole has a Beatles sound, particularly Sabrosa Subway. 
And we also have a clip from uh, the actual, uh, an actual 1977 interview with Steve Smith where he lays out the clues, yes? Yes, we do, and here it is. The main, you know, the, the two most main Sub Rosa Subway, you know? Right. And Dr. Marvello, Sub Rosa Subway, and everything on it sounds Beatlish. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, especially the voice. McCartney's, you know, it sounds like McCartney's voice. And then at the end of the song, it sounds almost exactly like uh, All You Need Is Love. Dr. Marvello sounds like George Harrison, you know, with the sitar and uh, you know reverse tape effects in the in the song itself too and you know really how many how many groups do you know today that use a sitar Dr. Marvello and Sub Rosa Subway yeah were both copyrighted 1974 yeah okay the end of 73 beginning of 74 Ringo's album Ringo was being recorded and on that album are all four Beatles Paul McCartney in 73 sometimes said that he intimates he was you know wasn't averse to a Beatles reunion and a little farther on he said the only thing that was keeping them apart was a contractual hold with Alan Klein the contractual hold of the Beatles name with Alan Klein now all the suits are south January 1974 John Lennon says that he would go for a reunion. Mm-hmm. And Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney said that yes, he would like to get together, uh, you know, a reunion of the Beatles, but not as the Beatles, mm-hmm. under another name. George Harrison says if the Beatles ever did get back together, it would, they would have to do it for the music's sake first. The first, uh, well, the first obvious tie together is Plateau itself from, uh, first of all, the movie, the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still right, with Michael right. Rennie, plus Ringo's was- Goodnight Vienna album. Having the phrase Klaatu Barata Nikto on there, uh, which immediately ties it together with this. There was a big poster that came with the album Goodnight Vienna. I didn't and um, Ringo was there, and they had uh, put Ringo's head in my on the Michael Rennie body, body, and he was standing on the spaceship right, next right. to the robot with his hand out. Yeah, and the phrase the album, was Klaatu Barata Nikto. All right, there's a line in Sub Rosa Subway that says, uh, New York City in the morning sun were awoken by the strangest sound. Yeah. And the Beatles, when they first came to America, landed in New York City, right, Kennedy Airport. They played the Ed Sullivan Show in Carnegie Hall. Now the next line says, reportedly as far as Washington, the tremors shook the earth. The next place the Beatles played in America was the Washington Coliseum. Once again, as in the conversation with O'Malley, the name of Clatoon's manager, Frank Davies, was mentioned. Um, you talked with Davies. Yes, I did. He he did state flatly, no, it is not the Beatles. He said, no, it is none of the Beatles. But if he did say yes, then he'd be telling us who it was. If he said, I can't answer that, it'd be like saying, well, yes, it is. He had to say no. And he came back to me and said, you know, like, well, if it is the Beatles, you'll, you know, and he stopped. And I said, yeah, I'll feel like a million dollars for figuring this out, you know. You quote him as saying, uh, you're, you summar- Everything that I've summarized is pretty accurate. That's what he told me. And then, as you notice later on, he told me to, uh, you know, hold on to the to the article, you know, write it that way, and uh, it'll be something to look back on. A lot of words that I looked up, it all has to do with secret, secretly. And getting to secretly, take Sub Rosa. Sub Rosa with a hyphen means secretly. Sub Rosa without a hyphen means it was used at all times 
and uh, people sitting around a table, they'd have a rose above this table, and all the people sitting at this table were sworn to secrecy. And if you if you remember, Paul McCartney had his album, Red Rose Speedway, this rose, and he had a red rose in his mouth. Mm-hmm. And that was like at the end of 1973, which was when these guys supposedly got together. Uh, could that be his way of saying, well, I'm being sworn to secrecy, you know, I can't say anything? All right, Dr. Marvello, the first verse, Jonesy turned the tide. Okay, when the Beatles were in Hamburg, they were really struggling, okay, way back when. This guy, by the name of Ray Jones, went to Brian Epstein's record store and wanted an album by the Beatles. Jonesy turned the tide. Brian Epstein couldn't figure out why a band from Liverpool, you know, was doing so good. So he went, saw the Beatles, thought they were a little rough, you know, the music, but he signed them up anyway, all because of this guy, Raymond Jones. I think there's a great possibility that it's the Beatles. Interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting, and the story about Raymond Jones is is true because the the Beatles were in Hamburg playing with uh, Tony Sheridan, and they came out with a single called "My Bonnie," and uh, that was the song that uh, that Ray Jones kept going into Nem's music slash furniture store. It was uh, <laughs> Brian Epstein's dad ran a furniture store called Nem's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and then. The, you know, Brian turned it into kind of like more of a music store. And, uh, and, and so they, it was Raymond Jones. That's true. So the rumor turns into this global phenomenon with Beatles fans being fed clues by radio stations and print media. And also, Sabrosa Subway and Calling Occupants became minor hits for Clatu in 1977. And Calling Occupants was actually covered by the Carpenters, as Richard Carpenter was a fan of the band. And I think this wave, actually, you picked up on it where you were, yes, with the radio shows yes. and all that? Yeah, uh, WDRC in Hartford uh, picked up on it and was having a lot of people call in, give, give your clues. Um, and to, to be honest, there was some, some mysterious stuff on the album, like on Sub Rosa uh, Subway. Uh, I'll play a little bit of it here. There's actually a Morse code message uh, embedded in the song. Towards the end of the song, when it starts getting layered and layered, all of a sudden, the Morse code starts. And this is what that sounds like. You just barely hear it in the background. Oh, yeah. I hear it. I mean, it's pretty high pitch, uh, but there is a Morse code message. And do we know what it said? Uh, yeah, it's been translated. It's talking about first contact with aliens, that basically uh, the motherships are in place and the first contact will be in London. <laughs> and at that point, the song, it's getting very layered. There, There's trumpets, there's a clap track. I mean, it sounds very Beatle-ish. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, so you remember the radio shows really kind of dedicating themselves to figuring out this mystery? Yes, yeah, and I think we've got a clip of an example of one show out of, I think, a station in Georgia. Yep. Back in 
this weekend, you'll have chances to win the new Clat 2 album on Z93. Win it, listen, listen, and decide for yourself. Sunday night at 9, Z93 will present an exclusive study on Clatu with interviews with Clatu's manager, Frank Davies. Win Clatu all this weekend on Z93. Now, some people have gone so far as to say that uh, they think the Beatles snuck into a recording studio to cut this album just to see if they could get away with it. Now, we're going to talk to the group's manager, the man who is responsible. Uh, for putting this album together on Sunday night at 9 o'clock, and hopefully he'll answer some of the questions. Now, I'm going to play a cut off the album, the Clatu album that we're giving away. And this cut is called Dr. Uh, Marvello. I'm not going to play very much of it, but I want you to listen to it and uh, help decide a little bit for yourself whether or not you think it may sound like the Beatles, okay? Just a very small portion of it. If you will, please listen very carefully. Huh? There's a very small portion of the music in the Class 2 album. What do you think? Sounds like the Beatles? Well, maybe you can win one of those albums this weekend and decide for yourself. And don't forget, we'll talk to the manager of the group and the man who's responsible for the album on Sunday night at 9 o'clock. Meanwhile, best of luck to you in winning an album. So while all this was happening, Clatu was in England recording their second album. They, uh, they reportedly were somewhat aware of the situation with regard to the rumors, but didn't really take them entirely seriously. And possibly that's because uh, the United Kingdom's New Musical Express famously published an article on the Beatles as Clatu theory under the title, Deaf Idiot Journalist Starts a Beatle Rumor. Um, but Capitol Records, I mean, they know when they're looking at a cash cow, uh, they try to make as much of the rumors as possible by issuing a series of ambiguously worded statements that really failed to uh, make the band's identity uh, entirely clear. And I think we have a clip from Dennis O'Malley, who's a capital rep out of Boston in 1977. In the last two days, I've done a little investigative work and tried to determine who they are and what the album's all about. And with the help of uh, your station and a few other stations on the East Coast, we've determined that nobody knows for sure who, who the group is. The album was released in August of 1976 uh, through our Canadian affiliate, Capital Canada. But uh, there, are, there are references, uh, references have been made in the newspaper article last Sunday, and also from uh, various stations around the country that have played the record, that there are obvious Beatle uh, similarities in both the writing, the production, and the general theme of the album. During the late 1960s, the estimated cost of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper LP was $150,000. Considering the complexity of the two album and the inflationary spiral, what would such an album cost today to produce? It would have to be double. Why then would Capitol Records give over a quarter of a million dollars in production money to a heretofore unknown musical group? The chances are they wouldn't. Frank Davies, again, who is their manager, mentioned that the album was two years in the making. Now, whether that means two years in the studio or, you know, two years of writing and rehearsing and then recording the album, I'm not certain. But we do know that the, some of the songs are written as far back as 74 and others uh, right near the completion of the album in the summer of 76. Is Clatoo the Beatles? 
I really can't say for sure that it isn't. It does sound an awful lot like what the Beatles were doing in the late 60s, music-wise. And uh, the, as I mentioned, the general theme of the album is a subject that uh, would, would seem to me to be a subject that the Beatles were most interested in at that time. So Frank Davies, who had signed the group to Capitol, said that when Smith called to do research for his article, uh, he was definitely playing coy. So by this time, the album had been out for six months. Uh, he says, we did have some great press on it, but it only sold seven or 8,000 copies in the U.S. And we'd reached a point where we thought the album was over and the band had already started working on the second, which was shaping up beautifully. Then Steve's story was published and all hell broke loose sales-wise. Uh, so Capital started sending out Steve Smith's review all over the world. <laughs> and the, the gamble they took signing this unknown band actually started paying off. And uh, the rumors started taking on a life of their own. And Terry Draper, who was the, the drummer for Klaatu, said, We were in England recording. Somebody told us about the Beatles rumor, and we all had a good laugh and went back to work. But when we returned to Canada, it was ridiculous. Cashbox, Billboard, all the magazines, everybody was talking about it. It went around the world via the United Press Agency. We, we didn't know what to do. Everybody uh, was making money, including us. Uh, we were quite delighted that we were selling records and people were talking about us. So did we want to come out of the closet, squash the rumor, and stop the record sales? The whole anonymity thing, the whole idea was to have private lives, be just a normal person, and make music and millions of dollars. That was the goal. Um, but as the story gathered momentum, more Beatles clues began to emerge. Uh, Davies had worked for EMI, which handled Beatle recording in England, and Terry Brown had been an engineer at Olympic Studios in London where the Beatles had also recorded. And they started putting these little pieces together. Uh, radio stations picked up on Steve Smith's article, and within weeks, Klaatu's record was being played all across the U.S. And after the Klaatu story hit, uh, Davies received a postcard from his former EMI colleague, Paul McCartney, uh, supposedly, on which the, the ex-Beatle said he was having a laugh watching all the rumors swirling. <laughs> um, Capital continued. The second time. Yeah, that's right. He's having a laugh about the rumors. That's right. That's right. You don't have to be a Beatle, you know, to, to create these rumors and these conspiracy yeah. theories. But Capital continued to stoke the flames by placing an advertisement in a local trade magazines with a picture of the sun from the Klaatu album cover and the slogan, Klaatu is Klaatu. Um, so Wolaszek, the, the bassist, says it was a really weak way of denying the rumor. There was never any intention of milking the rumor on our part. We were trying to hold on to our anonymity, though. We were young and idealistic and thought we could weather the storm, uh, which turned out to be incorrect. So finally, I guess it was uh, Dwight Douglas, who was the program director of WWDC uh, in Washington, D.C. He took a more academic approach to unmasking Klaatu. He visited the Library of Congress and discovered that the songs from the album were actually copyrighted not to Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, or Starkey, but to Draper, Long, Wolaszek, and then his songwriting partner, Dino Tome. So uh, they actually started facing a, uh, a backlash. I think Der uh, Terry Draper gave an interview that we have a clip of, of the backlash. When people found out we weren't the Beatles, I think they were a little distraught. And, and worse than that, they thought that we perpetrated the rumor. And all we wanted to do was remain anonymous and just have private lives. I know in, uh, at the same studio working with Rush and, and the boys like that, who were relatively famous at the time, I know Getty couldn't go out to the 7-Eleven and buy milk. 
without having to sign an autograph or get accosted in some nature. And uh, that didn't really appeal to me, you know, or any of us. We're 25 years old. At 18, that might have worked. But now it was just, let's just make some music and forget about it, you know. And uh, so at this point, we were being asked to reveal ourselves. And we didn't. Um, uh, uh, Capitol Records published a full-page ad in Billboard, complete denial that it was the Beatles. The article read, Klaatu is Klaatu. That's it. Mm. So, a little more gas on the fire. Hmm. Yeah. Gotta love the Canadian accent there. Yeah, I know. It's great. It's great. But I guess Rolling Stone magazine gave the band their Hype of the Year award. And so there really was quite the recoil because people felt that the band tried to dupe them, which the band members said we, we never did. Terry Draper, the drummer, recalls, he goes, the whole thing reminds me of a Honeymooners episode in which Ralph believes he's inherited $40 million from a little old lady that he used to help on and off the bus. Because when she died, her attorney called Ralph and said, in her will, it, sa it says, to Ralph Cramden, I leave my fortune, only to find out that fortune is a parrot <laughs> whose, name, whose name is Fortune. <laughs> so uh, he says, that's sort of the way it played. Because he, he says, as soon as I heard the Beatle rumor, and then we were broiled up in it, I thought, cha-ching, this is going to be great. And he says, my, my cha-ching turned into this recoil where every record we put out uh, sold fewer than the, the ones that succeeded. But the former members of Klaatu are still involved in music. Uh, Terry Draper and Dee Long, they release solo albums. Uh, Draper oversees Klaatu's catalog and remastering. John Woloszek occasionally performs in a band with his friends and administers uh, the Magenta Lane music to look after Klaatu's business affairs. He says there's been a big resurgence in interest in uh, in Klaatu. Um, he says our, our fans uh, tend to be extremely loyal. They stick with us even though there hasn't been any new Klaatu product out for, for decades. And there's some younger fans who weren't even born when Klaatu was around. And supposedly Steve Smith, who wrote that article, has mixed feelings about the whole Klaatu experience. He says, I, I feel kind of bad <laughs> about what eventually happened when they got poo-pooed. After it came out that they weren't the Beatles, nobody wanted to hear it anymore. I thought they were a really talented band. To this day, I still like them. I agree. I, I think, yeah, I think they put out some amazing stuff. Yeah, Hope is a fantastic album, he says, and I, I, I agree. And then John Woloszek, the, the bassist, says, you know, to engineer the press furor that happened was uh, way beyond our level of intelligence. Uh, nobody could have planned that. We were the victims to the rumor. I see the gold records on my wall. And I, I know what we accomplished. We got very good at what we were doing. It's a shame that we weren't allowed to have a place in the music industry workforce. We were forced out of it. So uh, obviously he has uh, bad feelings. But uh, we've got uh, Terry Draper's concluding thoughts. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a Damocles sword in, in as much as that every album sold less than the previous one. And the public felt duped. And it wasn't us. We didn't do it. Mm. We never pretended to be the Beatles. We didn't want to be the Beatles. Um, but let me backtrack. and um, it, it's, it's uncanny, and John first mentioned this uh, when we were talking one day, that Sgt. Pepper came out in 1967, and we were young men at the time playing in bands and trying to learn the ropes and wanting to know all about music. And in ten short years of hard work, we were rumored to be the Beatles reincarnate. 
doesn't get any better than no, that. No, no, that's, that's for sure. the ultimate compliment. Absolutely. And whether or not you like the music that we made or the rumors and everything attached to it, doesn't get any better than that. I agree. And, and yes. I'll tell you, yes. I'll be, t you know, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be listening to uh, 347 EST tonight. Uh, it is just so good. I had forgotten how good it was. Yeah, it's a great album. I mean, there's some some early stuff on there where they're obviously experimenting with uh, different styles. Uh, California Jam, I think, was one before they recorded before they came out with that album. Right. Uh, and it's kind of like a surf rock song. And there's a couple other things on there, but then they kind of hit the groove with the uh, kind of Beatles esque psychedelic rock music, and they do a great job with it. Yep. And Ray and I were talking before we went on the air. And, and um, you know, it, it's funny. It, there are some really, really nice moments in the music. And I think there are the most nice moments in the first album uh, and the second album. Um, but there are nice moments in every all the five. I think there were five albums altogether. And the nice moments in all of them. So it's, it's all worth a listen. They were a good band. Yeah. Also, I think... Really can't say enough about uh, Hope. Um, you know, Hope came out, and I had been listening to a lot of progressive rock in high school. So I've been, you know, listening to, yes, you know, Topographic Oceans and The Who, Tommy and Quadrophenia, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, like pictures at an exhibition. And the whole, you know, art concept album was a big thing. It actually was a little past that time period, but they came out with Hope, which is pretty much along the same lines, and they did an amazing job. I mean, the, the symphonic parts of that are, that they wrote are just amazing, and it all holds together as kind of a, a single theme about loneliness and isolation and, and alien contact, and uh, which ties also into the first album, and it's just, I think, their masterpiece. Yeah, and I I read one interview with their uh, their manager, and you could almost see when you look back through a historical lens, uh, you can almost see what the manager's thought was was sort of like there's an unknown band that needs to break. Um, the rumor will break the band in a big way, but when people are really listening, they're going to listen for that second album. They're going to hear some really good product, and they're going to establish themselves on on their own. Uh, and I think that was the thinking, and, and that's a logical way to look at it. Uh, they didn't they didn't anticipate facing a recoil where there'd be less interest because yeah. everybody was tied up in the hype. But uh, they're yeah. a good band. They, they are, and you know the the the, the last three albums, uh, Sir Army Suit, Endangered Species, and, and uh, Magenta Lane, uh, they're a couple of good tracks, but not quite like the early stuff, which is you know pretty typical of a lot of bands. Uh, so if you're interested in Clitou, definitely check out uh, 347 EST. And uh, if you feel like just sitting down with nothing to do and just listening to a whole album, uh, Hope is amazing. Yeah, it really is. Um, the, other, the other corollary to all this is I think it's absolutely true with, with bands. When they're, when they're trying to break into the business, they're, they're writing the material so they have a backlog. And so when they break, their first couple albums are great because they have this backlog of material. But then when they get the job and the label says, I need three albums, you're under contract for three albums. Well, suddenly when you're out touring and doing publicity, the, the new writing doesn't really, is a lot harder yeah. to do. And plus in this case, what was happening, um, I was telling, telling Ray, but what was also happening apparently was the, the label was trying to make them more commercial saying, all right, get out of this rumor thing now. Try to sound more American. 
uh, here we, we're going to augment you with some studio musicians to try to make this more commercial. And so it's like every bad headwind. I think they were they were facing the normal ones and the abnormal ones. Yeah, if I could play just a couple brief uh, samples of Hope. Um, Make yourself the title. Sure, this is the title track off of Hope. Part of it. George Harrison. I mean, it, it sounds a little bit like him. Yeah, the gu- guitar, the guitar part particularly. Yeah, it's got that bendy guitar. It's, yep, uh, yeah, yeah. The slide guitar. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's a nice chord progression too. Yeah, and I could picture that, you know, on the soundtrack to Time Bandits. Right. You know, it, it just it fits in. The way I look at it in the fullness of time is when I, whenever I'm listening to old old music um, is even if you were whatever your influence was that made you record what you recorded um, is it if it's in the groove that you enjoy then enjoy the music it doesn't matter why it was written or how it stands up is how does it stand up to you Uh, how do you connect with it and in that category I find this music very strong it's good very good one other one other track off of uh uh, off of hope and the, again this reminds me of uh like you know tommy where, where there's like some pieces that are just orchestral tracks and this is the the prelude track off of uh hope So uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Definitely a group that uh, deserves more than to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Thus, this podcast will change history. And next thing you know, they're going to be saying, what's going on with our album sales? They're going through the roof, thanks to the Cathartic Yards. That's there. right, because we have so many listeners. That's right. Yes. <laughs> the, the podcast with more platforms than listeners. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Cathartic Yardstick Podcast. Join us again as we try to save the world from certain destruction. Gordon, Ratu, Narada, Nick Toe.